from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. A shorter workday, uh, the end of child labor, um, higher wages, all kinds of things that ultimately uh, became the law in the United States. It was very spontaneous, and uh, that was uh, would ultimately be a problem for that particular strike. The idea was to show that that the streets were back in the hands of the respectable citizens, mm-hmm. and that parade has gone on um, to this very day. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 1877, St. Louis became the first American city to be run by communists. Now, it didn't last long, but that brief reign inspired at least one local tradition that continues to this day. And now Mark Kruger aims to remind us of this long-forgotten local history. A retired lawyer and retired professor from St. Louis University and St. Louis Community College Forest Park, Kruger explores the how and why communists took over the city in his new book, The St. Louis Commune of 1877, Communism in the Heartland, was published this fall by the University of Nebraska Press. And Mark Kruger joins us today to talk about it. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Mark, your book is about the St. Louis Commune, but we can't talk about what happened here without briefly talking about the Paris Commune in 1871. What happened there in Paris? Well, in 1871 in Paris, uh, there was an uprising of of, uh, uh, of the working class, and basically it, it goes back much farther because uh, at the time, uh, in Europe uh, generally, and in France in particular, uh, there was a movement by the middle classes, the new what they call bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. to uh, take power from the uh, feudal elements, from the uh, aristocracy, from the kings, uh, that sort of thing. And... Uh, there was a very bad depression, and workers were suffering in Paris, and uh, uh, and they rose up, and they took control of the city, and they, uh, uh, at the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, they took control of the city, and they began running it uh, uh, for, the, for the benefit of really the working class and the poor people. They passed all kinds of laws uh, that were beneficial to the working class. And they held the city for about almost three months mm. before French forces uh, came in and crushed them. And so this sort of struck fear into the hearts of powerful people everywhere. Safe to say that that kind of put people on edge. Like, man, the, the socialists could take over our city, too. Well, for example, in St. Louis in 1877, that was only six years after the Paris Commune. And what they saw was that the workers of Paris had rose up, taken control of the city, uh, passed all these laws. Uh, They were afraid they were going to take their property away from them. And, uh, you know, if it could happen in Paris, why couldn't it happen in the United States? Because uh, the situation was not all that different at that time. Yeah, I mean, there were just some real economic tumult at that time. And one other factor that made St. Louis sort of uniquely primed for this sort of like communist takeover was just how many Germans we had living here. Tell us how this kind of all goes back to Germany in some ways. Yeah, I I always knew that that St. Louis had a big German community. 
but I didn't really know where it came from. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened was is that there were revolutions all over Europe in 1848. Again, these resolution, these revolutions to try to take power uh, from the aristocracy. And in Germany, uh, the uh, revolution was was very violent, and uh, but it was suppressed. Mm -hmm. It was unsuccessful. And those uh, German revolutionaries had to flee the country. And many of them came to the United States. And they settled basically in St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Milwaukee, as well as New York City. So St. Louis had a lot of revolutionary, radical, socialist, some say communist uh, Germans that came to this city. Uh, and uh, they were really responsible for the... Uh, 1877 commune. So they brought their politics with them. Um, and then conditions in America sort of became ripe for revolution in a lot of ways. It was interesting reading this book. It, it felt like in some ways there were a lot of parallels today. And in other ways, things were a lot worse back then. What was happening in the 1870s in America? Well, it was, it was really a few years after industrialization came to the country. And with industrialization, uh, the artisan class was destroyed. Mm -hmm. These people that were skilled workers uh, were suddenly finding themselves working in factories as wage earners, and they weren't making very much money. And uh, there was a big depression in 1873 uh, that made things even worse. But even before that, there was a study done in New York City uh, where uh, what they found was is that uh, 20, 30 people were living in one room. Uh, 300 people living in one house. I mean, these details you had in this book just made my jaw drop. These were terrible living conditions. It was there were terrible living conditions, and there were there was no social welfare legislation. Mm -hmm. So if you were living that way, you were just trying to survive. Uh, you couldn't afford food for your family. You couldn't afford decent housing. You couldn't afford coal in the winter, and people were dying. And uh, when the Depression hit in 1873, it made it even worse. So those bad conditions became worse, and uh, it led to the, the railroad strike in 1877 and then the St. Louis Commune. So the, the railroad strike, these railroads were really rapacious. It was, it was kind of shocking. We think today of railroads as, oh, this is this nice alternative to cars. And, uh, you know, how lovely to see a train go by. These had a big impact on American life. And, and frankly, in some ways, people thought a, a very negative one. Well, these, these were the first really big corporations in the United States. And there was a great deal of expansion around the time of the Civil War. And uh, there was really no concern for the workers, for the working people. The railroad, railroad work was extremely dangerous. People were killed or maimed on a daily basis everywhere. The, uh, the railroad companies, the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Railroad, the New York Central, the uh, Baltimore and Ohio, all cut wages uh, in 1877 three times that year, so that workers were making about 50% of what they had been making the year before. And were the railroads losing money? Is that why they had to cut wages? Well, interestingly, they weren't losing money. Uh, some railroads, like the Pennsylvania, was actually making more money than it had made the year before. They were paying dividends to their shareholders of 8 to 10%. Uh, but what they did was they, uh, they cut the wages and they put on what they called double headers, where they have a locomotive in the front, a locomotive in the back, and twice as many cars. 
uh, without increasing the number of workers. And so as a result, the work was more dangerous and there was more work that, uh, for the workers to do at less money. And so this led to a, a huge strike. And, and what you cover in your book that was really surprising to me is it doesn't seem to have been particularly organized. That's one thing about the 1877 railroad strike is that it was spontaneous. And it began in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and Baltimore on July 16, 1877. And then it began to spread west. And there was no national leadership of the strike. Workers in one community would see that others were striking, and then they would strike for the same reasons. And it just spread all the way to California, actually. But it arrived in St. Louis five days after it began in Baltimore and uh, Martinsburg. And uh, they show you the speed that it was spreading west. Uh, but there was no national leadership, and uh, as a result, it was very spontaneous, and uh, that was uh, would ultimately be a problem for that particular strike. And what happened here in St. Louis um, was that it wasn't just the railroad railroad workers who then went on strike. How were they followed by all these other industries all over across town? Well, in 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 the cities uh, before the strike reached St. Louis. Uh, it was primarily the railroad workers who were on strike. But when the strike got to St. Louis, St. Louis was exceptional in the sense that uh, in 1876, there was the formation of the Working Men's Party of the United States, and that was a Marxist Communist Party. And in St. Louis, uh, the Working Men's Party was especially powerful. There were about 20 to 25 percent of all members of the party lived in St. Louis. Hmm. So with the German leadership and German philosophies that were brought over, uh, the Working Men's Party in St. Louis then uh, declared a general strike. And it asked workers of every industry, not just the railroads, but every industry to go out on strike. And that resulted in the complete shutdown of the city of St. Louis. It seems like it would be a hard sell. Why were so many people on board for, yeah, we're going for this general strike? Well, you know, it was the fourth year of a very, very bad depression. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you had uh, governments that uh, were really... Uh, sympathetic to the railroads, but not the working man. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the railroad workers went on strike, that was a spark to the other workers that uh, maybe they should strike too. So when they were encouraged to do so by the Working Men's Party, they went on strike. And in St. Louis, it's considered to be the first general strike in American history. And so this Working Men's Party, um, at this point, they're running the city. They're running the city at this point. They had set up uh, headquarters, elected an executive committee, and they were uh, providing uh, uh, security on the streets. They were protecting property. Uh, they were actually running the entire city, uh, although, as you say, briefly for a week. And uh, uh, it was being run by the, uh, by the Working Men's Party. They were making the decisions. If businesses needed something, they came to them rather than to city officials. Uh, and uh, it, it made it the only city in American history to ever be ruled by communists. So it was very interesting to read about the difference between East St. Louis, where this strike was also going on, and St. Louis here on the Missouri side of the river. In East St. Louis, uh, the mayor seemed like he was pretty supportive of this. This was not the case in St. Louis. How did they react to the fact that these communists were basically running the show? Well, in East St. Louis, the uh, Mayor Bowman had been a German revolutionary, not a communist, but more of a uh, nationalist who wanted to unite Germany. and uh, Which those had a lot in common with the socialists back in the day. Right. They were all together in, uh, in, in, in trying to overthrow that aristocracy. Mm -hmm. 
they, uh, they worked together on that. But he wasn't a communist, but he was sympathetic to revolution. He had experienced it. He had participated in it. And so when it came to East St. Louis, uh, he wasn't as uh, spooked as, as they were in St. Louis. Um, also, uh, East St. Louis had a very, very large number of people working for the railroads. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the working class uh, was very numerous in East St. Louis, and that's where his votes were coming from. So he needed to support them. And he even uh, appointed some of them as, uh, as special police to, uh, uh, to protect the city. In St. Louis, on the other hand, uh, there were a lot of rich people that there weren't in East St. Louis. And uh, of course, their reaction was going to be different than, uh, than the reaction in East St. Louis. And uh, they were worried uh, because of the Paris Commune, mm -hmm. which, had, which had, had, was just six years earlier, and uh, they were afraid that the, uh, uh, that the communists were gonna take their, uh, their property. And uh, so uh, uh, they, were, they, they were more concerned with uh, creating some kind of uh, reaction to the, uh, to the uh, activities of the workers in St. Louis than they were in East St. Louis. Now, if I could just say very briefly, um, when we talk about these communists in St. Louis in 1877, these are not the Soviet communists that we're all familiar with. Mm -hmm. I mean, these were people that had latched on to uh, Karl Marx's uh, theories, uh, which were basically uh, uh, trying to protect the working class at that time. So they're, they're much more democratic and they're much more uh, uh, interested in uh, helping poor people than than they were uh, than let's say modern communism. It was interesting to hear some of their their platform, and that makes it sound more organized than it was. But you know, they were in favor of a lot of things that that we now have, things like ten hour workdays, um, basic just good working conditions. Right, um, a shorter workday, uh, the end of child labor, um, higher wages, all kinds of things that ultimately. Uh, became the law in the United States. They were resisted uh, at first, but ultimately became the law. And so these guys are running the show in St. Louis. I mean, the, you argue here that they're basically serving as a de facto government during this this week, um, that the general strike is happening in St. Louis. We know the elites are not happy about this. How did they manage to uh, break this working man's party and the control that they had? Well, at first they didn't do anything. And uh, that's really how the Workmen's Party took control of the city because there was there was uh, no opposition. Um, then, and you have to remember also at that time, uh, after the Civil War, uh, a lot of people who had been in the army went home, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, at the time there were only about fifteen thousand people in the uh, Army of the United States, and most of those were on the frontier, uh, fighting Indians. Uh, so the federal government was not very strong at the time. And uh, in St. Louis, um, they, uh, uh, there was a delay, but as the passage of time uh, occurred, uh, they began to gather their forces together. They asked the federal government for some troops. Um, for example, this, this is not St. Louis, but uh, General Sherman was recalled from the frontier mm. to Chicago to fight workers there. And uh, uh, they were able to uh, raise uh, uh, local militia. The sheriff was uh, uh, drafting people uh, into a uh, local militia. And uh, uh, they began to uh, acquire arms uh, with the idea that as soon as they were strong enough, they would uh, take on the workers. 
We're talking today to Mark Kruger. He is the author of The St. Louis Commune of 1877, Communism in the Heartland, exploring what happened in the week where uh, communists, primarily German communists, ended up running the city of St. Louis, general strike, basically everything was shut down, city elite not happy about this, and yet they managed to drive them out of power without this turning into something like the Paris Commune. You know, we didn't see hundreds of people slaughtered in the streets. How do you think they were able to retake control? without it turning bloody? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the lack of national leadership of the strike. Uh, the workers took control of the city of St. Louis because there was really no opposition at the time from the city authorities. Um, but uh, they didn't do um, the things that they needed to do if they wanted to stay in power. Um, their goal never really was to overthrow the government of the United States or even to overthrow the authorities in St. Louis. Mm. Um, but uh, what they really wanted were social reforms. Um, and uh, uh, the absence of any kind of opposition is what really propelled them into power. And so as a result, when the, uh, when the government decided that they were going to put them down, uh, that gave them time to do it. The, the workers hadn't acquired any arms. They hadn't gone to the armory. Uh, they, hadn't, uh, they hadn't done anything really to physically resist. And so when the authorities got their, uh, their little militias together and got arms from the federal government and the state and from gun shops within the city, um, they were in a good position to, uh, to su suppress them. So this was just about a week where they were in charge. You write, there had been no deaths and virtually no violence, damage to property, or looting. Overall, you seem to think the communists didn't do a bad job. You know, um, in other cities where the Workingmen's Party was not in charge of the strike, uh, there was a lot of violence. In Baltimore, in Pittsburgh especially, in Pittsburgh, um, over 100 locomotives and 2,000 railroad cars were destroyed. Uh, there were oil cars that were set ablaze and uh, pushed into the roundhouse where the militia was, uh, was uh, uh, gathered. Uh, and in Chicago, there were firefights in the street with the police and the workers. But in St. Louis, uh, the Workingmen's Party really had control uh, of, the, uh, of the strike here. And one of the things that they uh, were, were very concerned with was violence. They mm -hmm. didn't want violence. They thought it would hurt their cause. They wanted to show that they were legitimate citizens that had legitimate grievances. And uh, they, did a, they did a very good job. There was uh, hardly any looting or violence in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. What made St. Louis special was the fact that it was the only general strike and the only time communists had taken control of a city. Certainly a, a very interesting history here. And one thing I want to make sure we get to today is you connect this directly to the infamous veiled prophet tradition that goes on to this day in St. Louis. How did that come out of these events of 1877? Well, after the uh, St. Louis Commune was suppressed, uh, a short time later, uh, a letter went out to some of the leading citizens of St. Louis, that is the richest ones, saying that they were forming an organization. And uh, the organization which they formed was a veiled profit organization. Um, shortly after the suppression of the commune, there was a big parade, militaristic kind of parade, uh, to show that the communists had been crushed and uh, um, the city was back in safe hands, so to speak. Uh, but uh, uh, then the veiled profit organization had their own parade. And they decided to have a parade every year after that. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to show that the streets 
which had been controlled by the St. Louis Commune people, uh, who had parades of 10 or 20,000 people on a daily basis, that the streets were back in the hands of the respectable citizens. Hmm. And that parade has gone on um, to this very day. Wow. So, have you ever wondered when, when and why the Veiled Prophet started? The answer is here in this book about communism in the heartland. Mark, this was such an interesting book, and I understand this was your first book other than your dissertation, which was published decades ago. What got you interested in exploring this history? Well, I was reading history books and uh, um, labor history books through the years, and, uh, you know, there was a lot on the 1877 railroad strike, but... Uh, just some mentions that in St. Louis, uh, a general strike occurred and communists took over the government. And that was it. And I thought, well, that seems strange. That's kind of odd. How did that happen? Who were these people? And where did they come from? And how did, how did that occur? And uh, so I, I basically began to think about, you know, what was occurring at that time. And, you know, within 30 years, the 30 years prior to the takeover of the city of St. Louis, you had the 1848 revolution in Germany. You had the formation of the First International by Karl Marx, attempting to unite workers throughout the country, and uh, throughout the world, I'm sorry, and uh, the Paris Commune, and then the Depression of 1873. And I began to see how all of that was related because the people who were, who were very active in the St. Louis Commune were generally German radicals who were members of the First International and French radicals who had participated in the Paris Commune. So it and all sort of comes together. It all came together uh, in the St. Louis Commune. So such an interesting story. And, you know, you'd kind of been wondering about this history. You ended up writing a whole book about it. Do you feel like you answered all the questions you set out to answer? Well, it's funny. When you finish you keep thinking of more things that uh, uh, you didn't answer. Um, but, so will uh, there be a sequel? I don't think so. <laughs> what happened to the communists after 1877? Something like that? I'm going to let the, somebody else pick up the ball on that one. So just in our final minute here, Mark, this history is so interesting. I kept seeing things that, that kind of made me think about today. What do you hope people take away from this book and this history you went so in-depth in? Well, I think it shows the need for legislation that deals with the problems of poor people mm. uh, because that's a spark that sets, that sets everything off. Secondly, the, uh, the reforms that, that became law after this were done a, a, as the result of unions. And you know, unions have really been suppressed in the last 20 years. And uh, from a third of the people belonging to unions to down to maybe 10%. And uh, that's where a lot of these changes came from was a pressure uh, uh, brought by unions. And so, I think it's kind of a lesson that if we don't deal with these problems, um, you know, bad things can happen. Hmm. Um, so sort of a warning. Kind of a warning. And uh, the other thing that to take away from it, I think, is, is that we need to know our history. That uh, when I talk to people about this, I was surprised by nobody had ever heard of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to know our history so this whole book burning thing that's going on today uh, is, is not a good thing. Well, Mark Kruger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Sarah. And that book, again, is The St. Louis Commune of 1877, Communism in the Heartland. We have a link on our website if you want to purchase a copy. That's stlonair.show. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer.
St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.